So you think you know how cancer works. You think you know that cancer starts at, at a DNA level. And perhaps it's not that simple. Perhaps cancer begins in some other area of the cell called the mitochondria. Today, we talk to Dr. Nasha Winters, who is a global healthcare authority and the best-selling author of the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. She is a consulting physician around the world. She has educated hundreds of professionals in clinical use of integrative and metabolic approaches to cancer, including the use of mistletoe, which we don't talk about today because we just didn't have the time. Dr. Winters is also currently focused on opening a comprehensive metabolic oncology hospital and the most advanced integrative ther therapies will be offered there. The facility will be in a residential setting on a gorgeous campus and it will serve as a backdrop of regenerative farming, EMF mitigation, and a retreat for those with cancer. So I'm excited about that with Dr. Winners. So today we talked a bit about, of course, what is the metabolic approach to cancer and what is the metabolic approach to prostate cancer? Might be a, a bit different than other cancers. Each cancer works differently. So then what do we do with that information? I am super excited with guest Dr. Nasha Winners, who is a colleague and a friend, and I'm super fortunate to know her and to know her work very well. Our conversation with the metabolic approach to cancer with Dr. Nasha winners. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention, my goal, and my purpose to help you improve and optimize your prostate health and live better with age. What a pleasure to have my friend and my colleague, Dr. Nisha Winners here. Nisha, I'm happy to have you on for a thousand reasons. I mean, it took us, what, 45 minutes to actually start recording? <laughs> because it's like, oh my God, we, it's catching up on everything that we're doing. And I love it when a patient comes to me and says, you know, I have this book on metabolic type and cancer. I don't know if you know the book or you know the author. I was like, I know the book and... I think I know the author, um, and so it's so um, an honor to when I have a patient that comes in with your with your book, which it will be on our show notes. Cool. General overview: the metabolic approach to cancer. We won't talk about prostate cancer yet, and maybe you can tell us how does. Let's start at a very basic level. Even I love basic things, and I kind of been doing what I do for a long time. I was like, how do we keep it simple? Perfect. Perfect. How does cancer even happen, mm -hmm. right? And what is the metabolic approach to to cancer? Uh, so you can go one and two if you like, or Love. take it however way you want to take it. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much. It's like you said, we spent forty five minutes beforehand, just like oh. yay, I'm just getting excited to be here with each other, and I'm really honored to be here as a as a guest and hopefully share some things with your community, uh, which will be a lot of fun as well. But let me just start. Context for me is everything. Yeah. So what's very interesting is Team 14, Dr. Theodore Bovary, is who sort of coined the concept of cancer as a genetic disease, a somatic mutation theory. And then basically, flash forward, you know, 110 years later, we are still sort of, you know, 
beating to that drum to that drum and that's where all of our research has gone especially when we got a kind of a shot in the arm when the dna helix was found by watson and crick into the 1950s and we really put all of our energy and sort of all of our all of our eggs in the basket of cancer is a genetic disorder. So that's, and even today, that's where most of our- Period, end of story. Right, right, that's exactly. That's it. Yeah, done. It's like, there we are. That's it. And so <laughs> interesting, about the same time into the early 1920s, um, there was another researcher, Otto Warburg, that started to see that perhaps the genes wasn't the starting point. It's not to say that the genes don't have some role in this, but there might be a, a few steps above you know, where the genes start to foul express, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what he started to notice was sort of, again, accidentally, is it seems like all great things in science comes from accidents. <laughs> you know, he, he started to have this belief system because he was studying like urchin eggs, right? And, or, you know, the way they develop and had sort of this every belief system that it would proliferate in a particular way until it didn't. And so that's what kind of got him curious, digging a little bit deeper. And long story short, he was able to track back that the the energy sources that some cancer cells were using were different than the energy sources that healthy cells were using. Pretty simple, right? And so when we have healthy metabolism, our bodies are meant to be kind of a hybrid engine. We should easily be able to, in times of scarcity or times of excess, move easily back and forth from burning sugar or burning fat just as needed. And we evolved from that. You know, there was a reason why we evolved from that because we didn't always have a 7-Eleven on every corner available to you, right? Every night. So there was this cool kind of evolutionary reason why our body could go into different sources as needed. But with cancer cells, what was really curious is they kind of get stuck in one mostly, I should say, we'll start that caveat there because we'll go down another path here in a moment. But for the most part, cancer cells get stuck in burning one major fuel source, which is glucose, okay? And and all of them will do that. All cancer cells and all cancer types will really predominantly go for glucose. Some might also preferentiate to other fuels, but we'll come into that discussion a little bit later, So, should we get into the prostate specific. But he was like, well, that's a curious thing. And so in looking at that, simply put, he took it down to even another level to realize even that was happening at the level of the mitochondria. So most of us learned about mitochondria in sixth grade biology, about them being our little factories of, you know, make our house of the cell. You got it. Our house of the cell, right? I think everybody, right? Exactly. And so we're like, oh, great. At the end of the day, you make ATP. That's what was important. Well, what he was learning about was this concept. In fact, one of his mentors was Krebs, as in the Krebs cycle of um, this in the biochemistry piece. But basically, at the end of the day, the cancer cells would default to this kind of primal fuel burning that was actually less efficient, ironically, than what healthy cells would do. So that's not so important of a story. What's important of the story is he recognized, wow, there's a lot of stuff happening at the level of the mitochondria, at the level of the way the body is using fuel in a cancering process versus using fuel in a healthy process. So that picked up some momentum. He actually won a Nobel Prize for it, I think 1931, 1932. But then it got kind of buried in the 50s when we started digging deeper into the helix. So that kind of just got... Why did that... Yeah, so I'm a little bit of a, in my mind anyway, historian. A couple of questions that I wonder if you know. Mm -hmm. The 1920s or late 20s, he was a Jewish man in Germany. Was Hitler Hitler incentivized to... Uh, help him 
with his research, though he was a Jew because his mother died from breast cancer? That's question number one. And number two, what was the relationship there with a Jew and Hitler, if you know? Yep. And and why was it buried? Is it just political? Why was it buried? So I'll let you take it away. First of all, first of all there's a great book called Ravenous. And if you have not- Ravenous. Ravenous. And I cannot believe I can't think of the author's name right now. I can see his face. I can hear his voice. And I can see his book. And I've read it. And it's amazing. And it literally goes into the history here. But the fact that you've not read this book and know this piece, intuit to this piece, is just beautiful. Um, it just shows your historian type of brain. And they're asking the right <laughs> questions. That's also a sign of a good scientist, right? To be an observer. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can get these days. <laughs> but you're right. So there's. let's look at that time frame. Let's look at the early 1920s. We're moving now into World War II. We're moving now into a time where you've just noted very specifically the Jewish-Hitler dialogues, right? The other thing that was very interesting about that time is, yes, you have Hitler and the rise of Nazism and all this piece here, but there's also an incredible terror about cancer. That There's an ethos within that time frame that everyone was very terrified of cancer and Hitler in particular because of exactly what you spoke to. So there was a personal experience with that, but there was also this commitment of, you know, they were very big into research. Oh God, we know how that played out. But um, but they were very, very much wanting to solve the mystery of cancer and were terrified of it. So I always think homeopathically, they probably all could have used a dose of arsenic amalgam, you know, occasion <laughs> of that. So, so there was that side of it. The other side to your question is how did his fellow Jews handle him staying behind when the rest of them fleed or were murdered or, you know, whatever. It didn't go well, right? He was basically disenfranchised by his entire community and understandably so. I mean, he was considered a traitor to, you know, his, his Jewish culture. He was considered a traitor to the scientific minds. He was considered a traitor kind of globally because of that. But he was a pretty intense, as you will learn in his book, a pretty intense myopic individual who was absolutely honed in that this was going to be his claim to fame. And he did not mm. care the means of getting there. And that unfortunately burned a lot of bridges and likely set back the wisdom of his findings and his research mm. for decades. In fact, buried for decades, right? And so a lot of people will talk about maybe where this kind of rose up again. But I think I give a lot of credit to Dr. Thomas Seafried, who really yeah. seemed to kind of dust off the research and reevaluate some things into the early 2000s to say, let's take a look at this again. Not that Dr. Otto Wargerberg had all the answers, but he certainly had some compelling questions that warranted further investigation. And so one of the things I'd like to help people understand is, you know, in 1971, we claimed the war on cancer, and yet here we are 52 years later, and we've not really done it great. I was just born. <laughs> I was 71 also. That was my year. So oh, it was, yeah, you know, I was like, Nixon, right. Yeah. That's, Ooh, yeah. did you look up your, did you ever look up the New York times on the day that you were born or something? No, I, you know, I love when I see those things. Cause there's always really yeah. cool stuff. Happening. Did you do that for Morris? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it was like the whole Nixon at the time. It was the oh the scandals with Nixon, the Watergate, all that stuff. The Watergate, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seventy-one was a trippy year, you know. I think you know finishing up Vietnam, um, everything with the Nixon administration, right. everything with the war and cancer and the redistribution of our research dollars and where we put our attention, and we kind of took a wrong turn in Albuquerque, you know, at that time. And yeah. part yeah. of our war on cancer was it was coming out of a, an ethos of war that the whole globe can understand. And so that was sort of the 
thought process we took as well. And and so I like to lay that ground. I love that this came up here because it actually is very important for any other conversations we're going to have here about like what, what is cancer. Um, but first of all, one of the things that started happening is people like Dr. Thomas Seafried started to review the literature and even reproduce these, te- these studies themselves in the lab, which was if this if cancer is in fact a genetic disease, there's a very simple study known as the nuclear transfer cell studies, okay, nuclear transfer studies, which is basically where we take the hard drive, the the container within the cells that contains all the genetic material, okay, the nuclei, and you would remove that nuclei from a healthy cell and you would replace the nuclei of a cancer cell with that healthy nuclei. If this was a genetic disease, you would theoretically turn that cancer cell back into a healthy cell. And the opposite was true is if you took the hard drive, the the genetic material of that nuclei from a cancer cell and you replaced the nuclei of a healthy cell, you should, if this is a genetic disease, turn this into a cancer cell. That did not happen. And it's never happened. And it won't happen because it's not just a genetic disease. And that we also understand that our genetic signalings are coming from external to that nuclei in and out. And that's where people started getting curious. And so one of my heroes is Mina Bissell, who in the 1980s, she started really doing research and talking about this extracellular matrix. And then that mm-hmm. that's where the magic's happening. We might today, you and I might call it the, the, the tumor microenvironment. That's my word, but I think your word is the terrain. The terrain is where I like to call it. And so that's right. And so it's like, what is that cell floating in? What is that mitochondria floating in? What is that nuclei floating in? Suddenly we went away from that kind of myopic view of here's where the problem is in the DNA here inside this nuclei to a more global perspective of, oh, interesting. There's a lot of interesting signaling communication happening outside of that. And one of the components of that is how the body is producing and utilizing energy at that mitochondrial level, which is what brought the kind of curiosity back for people like Dr. Seafree to say, hmm, that's interesting. Let's take a look at this deeper. So Fast forward. So maybe cancer, maybe cancer is a mitochondrial disease. Exactly. And that's where a lot of the data is even today coming more and more forthright with that. You can, it's funny because, you know, chat GPT only goes through at 2021 unless you get the updated versions. If you even Google what's the difference between somatic mutation theory and mitochondrial metabolic theory of cancer, even in two years, like they're still missing a lot of the data we have in the last two years. That there's, and I love to give the example that one of my heroes, he doesn't know it yet, but I stalk him regularly, is Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. I love the book, Emperor of All Maladies. Love it. I mean, it's excellent. It's excellent book. Beautiful and intense. But you know, if you read this book, he finishes at the end of the book basically still saying, this is a, this is a genetic disease, right? Then he's called, he wrote a paper on the New Yorker, I would yes. say. On the on the on the environment on the terrain on the and then I, I still use it. I was like, no way. I mean, I had I wanted to cry. I did. This I did. Uh, you're, <laughs> but you're new. World renowned. Yep, he walked. He drank the terrain Kool Aid. I like to say. Yeah, that's right. He that's right. From that world, and yet he himself tried to disprove the mitochondrial metabolic approach. So his next book was actually called the Gene. 
That's right. It was like trying to kind of still like kick that can down the road a little bit further, right? And there's <laughs> all these like Vogelstein and, you know, right. guys still saying, oh, cancer's just a genetic roulette and it's just bad luck. Like he was trying to toe that line, right? His li- latest book, The Cell, it's, it's, beautiful i mean talk about crying i i I, what a writer exactly i i I read his books and i'm first of all there's an element i'm like geo you suck as a writer (laughs) makes you know i mean right to read up up your game but there's also this like wow i can write better because i just read this book totally and And, you know more more with more clarity better sequence more in a more elegant yeah more elegant way that's yeah. beautiful and he's he's a storyteller and he that's why yeah. even love the name of his book the first book the biography of cancer right improbable not it's like unbelievable he's telling the story of this and he's also in that book for those who haven't read it it's juicy it's over a thousand pages um so we'll talk about my cliff's notes version i'd recommend instead if you want to still over curious but he he tells the story about the history of cancer and about sort of what we think cancer is and he was still kind of holding on at the end of the book to say it's a genetic disorder his you can almost watch his process his mind you know set change in the last few years and to your point when that article came out in the new yorker i i literally it's one of my favorites to refer i think that was 2017 or 18 yeah 2017 or 18 i can't remember exactly so beautiful to see like there was this epiphany for him and in fact today he is one of the most renowned researchers in metabolic mitochondrial what we call metabolic oncology today. And he even owns, like he actually owns shares in some companies that are testing in this arena and looking at, at metabolomics and, and how to target these things. I mean, this man, talk about witnessing someone's evolution in real time, glorious. And I have such respect for him to- Absolutely. And the beauty is he also didn't like throw away the genetics. He's like, the genetics have a role, but we have, but the controller of those genetics is what's happening at that mitochondrial metabolic level. And what I like about him is what many people have said about me is that, Gio, you know, I hope you don't run for politics. You'll be a horrible politician. And I took it as a compliment right off the bat. <laughs> totally. And he's, they say, you, you change your mind. Mm. You tend to change your mind. I said, I absolutely do. Yeah, me too. If I got it wrong some years ago, right. I want to change my mind. And I want to get it right, not be right. Right. This is exactly what uh, Siddhartha has, has done. Nailed it. Nailed it. And that's so beautiful. That's exactly it. Because I think any clinician who's been in practice for longer than five years will definitely eat crow at some point in their time, in their career and should. Yeah. Because yeah. you're learning things always. And if you're still practicing the way you were originally taught or the way you were five years ago, 10 years ago, you probably need to retire or look at another career. Because <laughs> that's right. Right. I mean, our, our fields. Yeah. are exploding. Like I said, even ChatGPT of missing data from 2021 to today, two years later, the explosion. Right now, I think there's just right now, if you went on PubMed and you typed in ketogenic diet and cancer, for instance, there's over 620 current clinical trials, right? I mean, that's just one example. And then what that segues into is where people like Seafried and others who come along, researchers like Dr. Adrian Sheck, Dr. Richard Fry, Dr. Don D'Agostino, a lot of the folks in this sort of metabolic health space in general that got sort of pushed into the oncology space because it's, it's, it's just where funding and their research has taken them, they started to realize you could manipulate the behavior of that mitochondria of that shifted metabolic, what they call the metabolic drift, or that that place where you have this aberrant energy utilization now 
in a cancering process, which behaves very differently and very distinctly from a healthy cancer, from a healthy self, right? And so that's where folks get really confused is you realize you've got two parallel journeys happening simultaneously. You may have cancer or cancer tumor or cancer tumor cells or even cancer metabolic pathways, but it's still floating within this beautiful <laughs> entirety organism that's healthy cells, right? Or still listening cells. And so you have to be able to treat for both of them simultaneously. And that's where people like Dr. Gio and myself come forth and that we might also have to learn and become tumor experts. We have to know what we need to know about that environment and about what our colleagues in standard of care know. But we also have to be experts in the terrain and that extracellular matrix or that tumor micro environment to know how to enhance patient's response to any therapy at any given time. I love it. Thank you for thank you for that. That, that was so beautifully said and, and and so important to give that context. Thank you. Yeah. So then what do we do? How do we how do we turn these bad cells off um, in a and and let's see. I, I know that the approach, or at least the approach according yeah. to your knowledge and expertise is some level of supporting the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. You know, when people read this, they, you know, or hear about this, they're like, I'm eating no sugar, right? I'm eating, and, and no carbohydrates and things like that. Some go on a ketogenic diet. And what I've learned, Nisha, and again, I only see prostate cancer, right, so right. let's keep that in mind. Yeah. I mean, when people say, no, I did ketogenic diet because this guy Seafree did some research. Yeah. So yeah, that was glioblastoma. Right. And, and, and that's a bit very different biologically and metabolic, metabolically. The other component is, again, I've done ketogenic diets. I prescribed it initially in my practice years ago and, you know, staying on it, not easy. I've seen a lot of people on ketogenic diet where the lipids go really, really LDL. So the cardiovascular risk, I don't know if it's higher necessarily, but their LDLs and their, you know, their, their bad cholesterol, APOB goes really high, right? And some of them are, they respond differently. Right. I think they're doing research to see if that really matters from, so in other words, not to completely digress, but you have a very high APOB, you have a very high LDLC, you do a calcium score or some sort of CTA, and it comes out zero. Right. You know, there's no 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 plaque. Reason, right. And so, like, wait a minute. So, what, what do we do now? Do we do we have it all wrong with our biomarkers? So that's an area that's being investigated right now. Like, yeah. You know, like my good cardiologists uh, friends that are very integrative and open minded. I said, Geo, I give them a statin because I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know, and that and it's more of an I don't know scenario. Yeah. Now, now we we keep digressing and say, well, statin is not good for the not good for the mitochondria. Like, you know, there's a certain group of drugs that are not good mitochondria. So it's like, what what do we do with all this, sure. and how do we make it um, so that people can actually apply some sort of method? I like fasting, for example. Yes. So for me, in prostate cancer, prostate cancer is I, I guess you'll talk about that is, is more lipogenic, less glycolytic and so but i still believe in the power of of of, of ketones right right in the so yes. my method as opposed to a high fat diet because i'm afraid that in prostate cancer it may not be good for prostate cancer patients yes. but we can still get the same result through some level of fasting i said a lot no you take it away in whatever direction you want that is so beautifully first of all i want to just like thank you for someone out there understanding that the ketone bodies aren't the problem, it's the method of getting into ketosis that may not yeah. be the best fit for that for a pair for a prostate cancer. I, I think honestly, Gio, you're the first and probably only person who's made that connection. 
And so, oh. well, freaking Lydia is all I just want to say right there. <laughs> okay. Listen, if I don't know a couple of things by now on prostate cancer, I'll close shop and close my practice <laughs> and go bartend. Yeah, right. Over there in Mexico, by the way. There you go. Come on down with us here. <laughs> this is what's really good. Is so even so even on I think it's like page ninety one of my book when it came out in two thousand seventeen metabolic approach to cancer. We were even saying you know studies suggest that maybe this isn't the best and specifically therapeutic ketogenic diet, meaning high fat low carbohydrate, moderate to low protein diet for prostate cancer. We were speaking about that in the book. And it's like every prostate patient with prostate cancer, whoever reads that book, they see that, they highlight it, they send me a message like, am I killing myself? I'm like, wait a second, let's talk about how you're eating. So let's put that, that's one component. The other component is you alluded to a lot of things around people's sort of genetics, you know, like so into the epigenetics, the, the familial tendencies, the single nucleotide polymorphisms. Those can give me clues as to who is a good candidate for a high-fat, low-carb diet or not, right? Or even people who are a good candidate for a vegetarian diet or a carnivore diet or not. So we can even go deeper into what diet might have been genetically matched best for that patient that might be helpful at any given time. And then, of course, you talked about different metrics that we could test through, you know, calcium scores and and even other lab testing that you and I do a plethora of because we do like to look at the data. We're data driven here. So that's really important. So I want people to know that we take all of that information into context and we are not prescriptive or protocol driven in any form or fashion. What I would like to say, and you brought this up so beautifully, is that there are many roads to Rome to create metabolic flexibility. So when we talked about a healthy system in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about that we should be dual engines, that our body should be able to like go into burning glucose, burning fat very easily, very sustainably, very efficiently, you know, at need when the when the resources are low and in any department, right? But when cancer comes on, even if it's it has, even if there are certain cancer types that might utilize things like proteins like glutamine or arginine or methionine, which can happen in certain ways. And I'll talk about that. Amino acids. Uh, these are amino acids that create proteins. Exactly. Or if there are some that are lipophilic, like you said, that like the fats. So um, there are definitely certain breast cancer types that may suggest that cell line studies, for sure, prostate cancer cell line studies suggest this. I have had a few experiences in clinical to see that I think a high fat diet wasn't a good fit for my patient with prostate cancer. So I've, I've, I tend to be a bit more um, conservative there, even if I know that ketones aren't a problem. So I'm with you. If I may for a second, if you look hard enough at the literature like I have with prostate cancer, yeah. of course, is like everything is bad for prostate cancer. So right. I, eggs, you know, so many amino acids, eggs and choline. Choline, which you need for many nice. brain functions <laughs> to live. Yeah, right, exactly. How about that? How about to live? Yeah. A few amino acids. Uh, many of my friend, uh, my friend, my patients are don't want to, you know, so they want a low protein. But as they get older uh, now, they need more muscle for, to be functional and not to have metabolic problems, yep. so forth. Carbohydrates, you know, also problems. So I think that the, I think that the deal is mostly so. Okay, Dr. Gia, what's the dietary protocol? Well, there's levels. Yes. Yeah. Let's start with eat. Let's start with eat 50% less and eat until you're 80% full. Yeah. What do I eat? I don't care at this point. Eat 50% less until you're 80% full. And then we could start going into the weeds a little bit more. Yeah, depending how your metrics are are guiding us. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's just it is that we're not guessing. We're not throwing people on these things. And so one of the strategies that I have seen is so a lot of people think, oh, so 
ketogenic makes people forget that it's a it's a physiologic state. Ketosis is a physiologic state. And you can achieve ketosis just by carbohydrate restricting or caloric restricting, as you just alluded to. You can achieve ketosis as a carnivore. You can achieve ketosis is a high fat, low carb diet, which is considered a therapeutic ketogenic diet, which came to light in the 1920s used for epilepsy and pediatrics at Har- Harvard. Harvard. Harvard? Every time I say that, I want to say Harvard or Hopkins, my brain. One of the H's in the night. One of the H's. Apologies for that. That's it towards the end of the day here. Um, but you can also achieve a therapeutic ketosis and a keto a ketosis state with fasting. And so that is when I end up looking at cancer types on cell line studies and in, in the literature. And you start to go crazy of like you're pretty much got to live on distilled water and cardboard to avoid all the things. That's where a little bit of caloric restricted time-restricted eating and fasting, not even worrying about the what so much. I love that you just brought that up. Has massive utility, massive utility. And it is literally starving all the potential fuel sources. And so what's funny is up until the 1960s, fasting was probably the most utilized dietary approach in cancer patients until someone got it in their head in the 1960s that how dare we take something away from these poor people. And we got to just feed them. Let's just load them up. Let's get them on some insure while we're at it. Maybe some boost. You know, it sounds like my mom, right? Cuban mom. And if she saw me lose two pounds, you're like, oh, uh, yeah, oh keep open. But I'm full, yeah, mom. I'm open wide. Rice and beans. Op- open. You got to keep eating, you know? So she wanted always to see me nice and chunky. Yeah. And so we do, like, in the, the, the advice all of our patients are given is don't, no matter what, don't lose weight. But I'm telling you right now, guys. Less than so less than 6.8% of people in the United States specifically, this is where the studies are, likely this applies to all of our globalized, you know, westernized communities around the globe, but less than 6.8% of us are metabolically healthy, which means that I don't care if you even look a little skinny on the outside. There's a plenty, there are a lot of toffees walking on this planet, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. We can't know by looking at somebody, right? If they're too fat, too thin, you can't know that. You have to look at other metrics. So you can do body impedance testing because a BMI is BS. You can do like even on like cachexia, for instance, I lecture a lot about this and I teach patients about this because that fear that the doctor sees and they're like, no matter what, don't lose weight. I'm like, skinny. Eat whatever you want. Just keep eating. Eat whatever you want. Snickers bars don't matter. Worse it right there. And so when we start to lose on some weight, what we see is someone's actually moving into a metabolic state of weight loss, which is bad, right? This is cachexia, which happens like in-stage heart disease, in-stage HIV and AIDS, in-stage cancers. There are certain conditions, in-stage COPD, where you get what's known as sarcopenia or cachexia, where you start to lose all your muscle mass Mm. and you start to see, you can kind of see the, the, the gauntness showing up and maybe the really skinny arms and legs and kind of poochy belly that is a metabolic state that is not going to be responsive to any amount of calories and the irony about that metabolic state is it's driven by carbohydrates so it's an inflammatory process so it's a cytokine driven inflammatory process that is fueled by insulin okay and so the worst thing we can give to a patient in this state is things like boost and insure Right. It's, and then to tell them to go out and have eat whatever they want, eat as much of it they want. It actually fuels the process faster. So weirdly, what freaks people out is in our world, under medical supervision, we're watching them closely. We've actually had better success fasting people to get them out of cachexia than feeding people to get them out of cachexia. 
which is a weird. Well, that's a fascinating point right there. Honestly, in even I, in with somebody who's cachectic, I would I would hesitate to put them on a fast. Yeah. And now you just said that they will not. Yeah. They would not. They would do better if they fat, uh, if they were cachectic. Because you're dropping the insulin, you're kicking up the ketone bodies, which themselves are protective of muscle mass, and you're also dropping the inflammatory markers. And so when you pair that with, you add in MCT oil, you add, add in things that will boost the ketone bodies even further, you get them into a little bit of movement, a little bit of exercise, these patients turn around, I can turn them around within a matter of weeks. Now, again, this is very medically guided. We're looking at labs and what we're looking for in the labs is to make sure their serum protein and their serum albumin are both well within my optimal ranges. We want the serum protein above seven and the serum albumin above four. If both of them drop below those numbers, I know they're in stage one cachexia. And then we become a little more aggressive. If they're in like a stage one cachexia, that's where you want to kick up the protein, maybe, right? That's where you might um, have them be a little more physically active. But when they start to move into stage three and four cachexia, in stage three and four cachexia, that's where standard of care says you have less than three months to live. And so at that point, we don't have time to mess around. And so in a very highly medicalized environment, we can turn this around very quickly and stabilize. And we've been collecting the data on that. We hope to, to report on that. But colleagues of ours have done a lot of research in the field of cachexia and where a therapeutic ketosis, not necessarily in a high fat, low carb, but a high fat, if people can tolerate the high fat, low carb, that's really great because you're getting in all the calories as well. But with prostate, to your point, Gio, we have to be a little more mindful because it does have some good literature that suggests that the high fat diets could be problematic for these cancer types. And so we can, to your point, get them on carb restriction along with like a very Mediterranean heavy, sort of more, yeah, very much more absolutely. dense, play with the protein levels dependent on where they are in their life cycle. Like if they're, you know, like you said, if they're a 60, 75 year old man, they need to, they need to muscle retain, you know. And if they are on androgen deprivation therapy. Completely will change. So that. Yeah. They, you know, I have them on whey protein and I want muscle already. So there's three ways of keeping muscle, right? Right. There's, yeah. there's, there's stress, it. stressing the muscle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are um, certain amino acids like branchane and, and leucine primarily, and there is testosterone. You remove testosterone, I need a lot of the other two. Yeah, and that's usually the conversation with with those with those patients. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, so in a in a higher stage cachectic scenario? Yeah. Again, the the serum levels of protein will be much less than seven, and, uh, and albumin would be less than four. To see the creatinine drop and the calcium drop, and when you see calcium serum creatinine protein and albumin, all four are low, you know the patient's in in stage cachexia. And that's where it takes, literally with our patients, we get their family, we get their caregivers, we get their medical team on board to say, you're setting an alarm for every, every 15 minutes, you're putting something in your mouth of protein or fat every 15 minutes. And every hour you're taking a teaspoon to a tablespoon of to what's tolerated of MCT oil and or high dose of fish oil. Because we're trying to stop that cytokine storm and we're trying to realize the, the metabolic shift that's happening. We can often turn that around, like I said, within a matter of days to a couple of weeks. And it's hard because what happens in cachexia, you lose your appetite. 
So a lot of times sure. we'll encourage people to also utilize medical marijuana in that time to help with stimulate appetite if they are- Get the munchies? Yeah, get them the munchies, but make sure they're <laughs> stocked with the right kind of munchies. Like we make a lot of like- Keto donuts, are keto donuts and keto ice cream part of the- At that point we say yes, because at that point <laughs> we can ketify things that sound good you know, like, yeah. good, like make sure we still carbohydrate restrict. That's the key. And now I want to come back to when you, you talked about using whey, I would love for you to look at maybe using a, a different form because whey will kick up insulin and insulin growth factor in those folks. And so even though pro from, from, from uh, using protein eventually as, as glucose. Well, but, in, but whey in particular. Gluconeogenesis. Yes. Yeah. Whey and whey more particular than any of the other once you just rattled off. And so, you know, if there's another protein powder that you like, like a collagen based or something, we often will use that instead just to mitigate that insulin piece because prostate does still get pushed by insulin and insulin growth factor. So you still want to mm -hmm. carb restrict in that department, but you don't want to fat load these patients. Mm -hmm. And so, and what fats you do. Interesting. So yeah. with weight, so I'm interested in, primarily I'm interested in leucine, yeah. right? So sometimes I tell them, look, just take branching amino acids and creatine yeah. actually and, yeah. and creatine to keep muscle the weight component um, that's a that's a grim i have to look into that that's a, that's a great point thank you for bringing that up because i've been playing around of course i did plant proteins for a while i was like this just like not, not enough leucine and, and or the important yeah. um, protein synthesis amino acids and right and, and plant-based proteins. But it's interesting because, you know, you because oh, there's also that worry about the choline, what one one choice you could use, which will help your patients, would be the egg white powder. Yeah. Or just egg whites. So if there's concern, right. again, I I don't know. I've, I, I remember when all everyone was kind of freaking out about choline and I pulled all my patients off of choline. I don't, I didn't see a difference. I don't know. Do you, what, tell me, do you, do you see a difference? I mean, I don't you know, supplement them. It's so difficult to see a difference with the addition of one thing or the removal right. of one thing in right. patients, right? So I, I don't know. I can't say. Do you, what I can say is when there's a lot of literature pointing in one direction, I cannot ignore it. And it's almost like it's almost like across the board. Right. The literature, we can talk. I mean, I don't think glutamine and things like that are not all saying the same thing. I think I, I look at the preponderance of research there, like I do with everything else. With choline and eggs, yeah. whether it's a pros prospective studies or uh, human studies or uh, preclinical, it's all in that. Th so it's like, I don't know. I know we need choline, so I'm not going to have you not to take much choline, but I think there's a, there's a poisonous dose out there um, of which I'm not yet 100% familiar with what that is. So let's get you off the eggs because I know you're going to get it from other sources. Right. And that's where sometimes like in those patients when I have prostate cancer patients who are severely cachectic, which is really rare, by the way, in that patient type. You know, that it, cachexia is not a common unless it's very, 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 very end stage. In that time, you'll, you'll see it with, with things like pancreatic, ovarian, you know, lung cancers, things like that are have a higher propensity to move into that cachexia space. So we don't have to be as concerned. But I really like your strategies of like use it or lose it on the muscle mass, like make sure we are engaging that. And and this is where I think some of the most underutilized tools for us is exercise. And I know you're a huge proponent of that, Gio. Like I love your videos where you're out there working out. I didn't even know you're watching. But Thank you. I'm <laughs> a total stalker. What are you doing there? It's so good. You know, but these are the things like we, so back to kind of like the big picture what do we do here and that's where when we think about the mitochondria in general okay and when we start about what can we do 
you have to remember your mitochondria are like these little sensing agents. Like I just sort of mm -hmm. imagine like float around out there you know, on the side of the cell. Mm -hmm. They're taking in information. They're taking in through food. They're taking in through light. They have these cool things called cytochromes, you know. And I'm, you know, you, I'm preaching the choir here, but maybe your listeners don't know this. They're like, yeah, like little, Please, yeah, they're like solar panels, right? They're taking in yeah. specific frequencies of light, so colors of light. They're very sensitive to that, which is also how we can harness and use light to treat these things. By the way, which is pretty mm -hmm. cool, but they can also be very easily harmed by light, such as screen time that you and I are standing here talking about each other from all the blue light mm -hmm. and that, right? Or lack of nature time lack of the green spectrum, lack of the red spectrum from like sunrise, sunsets, et cetera. So if you're the average American and you're spending less than 15 minutes outdoors, you're not getting that beautiful, important, you know, full spectrum of light that is landing in those mitochondria cytochromes to help things move along more efficiently and effectively. Mitochondria are also taking in information of the food, the water, the air, both quality and toxicity of those things. And interesting, we also have interesting studies, like we can use a, there's a technology out there called the seahorse, not to be confused with what floats around the ocean, but it's a way to measure the respiratory chain of the mitochondria. So I also tell patients, I explain to them, it's like when cancer comes a knocking, it's like the mitochondria stop breathing, kind of suffocate, mm. right? And then they kind of get, you know what happens when you, you get a little desperate, right? You get a little resourceful. You start to like go crazy looking for other means. It's like what's mm -hmm. happening in our cancer cells. So it's taking in information. It's taking in information even of like who you're spending time with, what you're doing or not doing with your life. Are you in harmony with the circadian rhythm of your life, with the people in your life, with the seasons of your life? So your mitochondria are the sensing agent. And then they take in that information and they use that information to help churn out more signaling pathways. In fact, we think that they just make ATP. That's just one thing. They also are in charge of apoptosis. So mitochondria, when you don't have enough functioning mitochondria, you don't kill cancer. You don't die. So here it is. We have... And ironically, many other drugs out there and the pharmaceuticals and things, not only for cancer, but for other diseases they they do damage to uh, mitochondrial health. Which also just shows me the power of the resilience of us because honestly, we should all be working around like no mitochondria, right? It's like, it's like so silly. Oh my God. Zombies. We should all be zombies walking around. Kind of. And it's like in that. So what's also cool is they can be, they can have the crap beaten out of them and they can lose function, but they're also very resilient and can come back easily. So you talked about like, mm -hmm. how do we make the happy mitochondria? How do we make the sad mitochondria? So if you're constantly like, going to In-N-Out Burger and lathering up, you know, you know, phthalates all over your skin and you're having your clothes dry cleaned and using dryer sheets and you're sitting on your brand new flame retardant couch and you're sitting in traffic for three hours of your commute every day, huffing everyone's benzene and, you know, and you're, you're in a toxic marriage, you're in a toxic work environment, you're not getting out in nature and moving your body and you're then feeding it crap on the run and there's zero mindfulness and you're up late watching netflix just to cope with life and you're you know like do you see what i'm saying like that unfortunately i just described probably 80 to 90 percent of western civilization and i can't believe the walk like you said i can't believe the, the people i mean the body is the most resilient mechanism in existence yeah i can't believe people now the quality of how they're walking around that's another conversation but they're walking around yes uh, you know despite despite of all that yeah. hey 
Nisha, do you do you have patients test for their ketones with strips? Yes. Is that part of the? We do. We started yeah. was completely naive to a carbohydrate restricted lifestyle or keto ketosis lifestyle. We have them start with cheap, you know, off Amazon ketone dipsticks. So they check their ketones first thing in the morning on their. Any brand that you like? Golly, any of them. Whatever's on whatever's on sale on Amazon, mm -hmm. or Gerite Aid, right? It's not about accuracy as much as it's about see, see progress. Exactly. Because the first, you're kind of looking at a spectrum. They'll basically show low, moderate, or high. So what you're doing in the beginning when you start this is I advise patients to start to work with, like, this is where I talk to them in the office. I say, hey, are you comfortable fasting for 13 hours a day? Meaning you finish dinner at 7 p.m. and you don't break your fast until 8 a.m. Nothing but water, maybe black coffee or black tea, nothing in it. You'd be surprised at how many people can't do that. It's, it's pretty shocking because you're like, I can't function. I can't function without food in the morning. Right. 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 I can't. I need breakfast. Right. And so people and I say, well, you can have the breakfast, but can you extend it a little bit later? Because if we can get everyone back to a routine of at least 13 hours fasting every day, everyone, we if you're in a healthy metabolic state, you should be showing trace ketones on morning urine strips after a 13 hour fast. Is that your your magic number? Is it 13 hours? That is my magic number, but it's a magic number I learned from a lot of colleagues in this research space. And we, and people yeah. who've done like the test of like, okay, do we have ketones at nine hours? And looking at people's, you know, macronutrients, looking at people's yeah. diet diaries, looking at those things and going, okay. And it's, it doesn't seem to matter what that person's diet was, but somewhere around hour 13, we start to release some ketones in someone who's got some metabolic flexibility. So somewhere in these and 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 so are we releasing ketones after the thirteenth hour yeah. for a half hour for an hour until we eat? And does that matter? Yes, that's a great question. So once you eat, depending what you eat, if you go and have a high carb meal, you're going to yeah. kill those ketones right off, right? Yeah. But if you go and you have like, you know a meal that's predominantly fat or a meal that's very carb restricted and maybe a little bit of protein or just like really high uh, like above the ground leafy vegetables you know um, so like sauteed greens and an egg if you could do eggs or like sauteed greens and leftover fish from the night before with a lot of olive oil would be like a great way to break your fast that will actually keep pumping those ketones Right. And how about exercise? Uh, so, so exercise, uh, you know, exercise on an empty stomach with only, you know, fluids and, and, and is, does that promote more ketones? And do you keep, you keep building or creating more ketones as a result of that? How does that work? I love that question. So my husband's like the living lab for this. So he does not eat anything until he gets up in the morning. He always has, you know, he's probably more of a 15 to 16 hour faster every day, just just by nature, but he always gets in a good hardcore um, paddleboard session. And he goes up like an hour, hour and a half. And his ketones, well, he'll be basically trace ketones on blood. So, you know, he's at the point where once you, once you become metabolically flexible, you shouldn't be showing ketones in your urine anymore. Now your body should be utilizing them appropriately. And that's when you graduate to the blood testing. So he'll do his blood ketones before going out just to see what they're doing. And then he'll go for a paddle and come back in a fasted state. His ketones will suddenly be like two or three, like they're gorgeous. And then he'll have, you know, he likes to have like something high protein, high fat, you know, for breakfast at that point, we'll break it and he'll actually pop up a little bit more. So his mm. body has gotten into this like tuned thing. And this is a man, I want your listeners to know that when we met, he was a pro triathlete who both of us were vegans and he was probably eating, I don't know, five to six 
potatoes, like big baked potatoes a day, big buckets of rice, sure. all the rice and beans you could possibly imagine. He sure. stick thin. He had like little chicken legs. He was so adorable. Like just these little like gangly chicken legs. He weighed 172 pounds at six foot, almost six foot four, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the skin. He's now 53 and like this buff dude who never works out except for his, power, his paddle board five days a week. Right. Mm. And he's more fit now because he's giving his body the right fuel and he doesn't over exercise either. And if he did now, his choice would be to get in the gym and do weight training, because at this point, like cardio almost killed him. Like it webbed him up so hard. Like his, yeah, as it does with most directly. endurance athletes. Yeah. Exactly. And he was hardcore and it just destroyed him. And so changing from a carbohydrate high diet and a cardiovascular workout lifestyle to one that's more carb restricted, higher fat, because it works well in his body, um, with less, you like more like fit type of training and just regular movement, like day to day movement. He's in better shape at 53 than he was at 23. Right. And so I, 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 I can empathize with that for sure. With not only myself, but many people that are under my care. I bet because it's like, I think we somehow think we have to push ourselves. And a lot of our patients are actually causing themselves some disservice by going, like getting on the, you know, the elliptical for three hours or whatnot. And, and like, oh, how do you do less is more in that arena? You can do so much more. So specifically for men, um, people like Dr. I love Dr. Wilson's faster size. Right. Mm-hmm. So this yep. so link that up. Yeah, I love him. And I love this book because if I have men who are trying to maintain or create muscle mass, have them doing these short little burst workouts fasted, you guys grow muscle. You're kind of jerks. I'm just gonna say it. Like it's not fair <laughs> that it happens so fast. This is way more particular to the men physiology than the female physiology. Yeah. Women get a yeah. little bit out of it, but you guys really get a big bang for your buck. So even yeah. having your patients say, okay, I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna get up at 12 hours, I'm gonna go do my workout. So I'll be in a you know in a fasted state already. And then I can still break my fast an hour later after a workout with something that's not carb heavy. Your patients right there would probably see so much benefit on so many factors because that also, guess what, pops the tea naturally without it being the tea that's going to cause problems for their cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. The other component is that if you do that kind of workout and you have some sort of good quality protein that has these branching amino acids within right. two hours, within two hours roughly, okay, it, it really stimulates muscle uh, muscle based on based on studies so, so yeah you know about muscles muscles are the storage units for very very healthy mitochondria right. and so building that muscle mass is actually really desire to build new new healthier mitochondria that will scooch out those less healthy mitochondria and encourage the apoptosis of cells that are no longer serving you well and so I think that it's just this beautiful, elegant dance. And I think that naturopathy and functional medicine, looking at the whole being like, what are you ingesting? And that's even down to the media, not just down to your food and water okay. and to your day-to-day experiences, right? Those are things that are creating that swimming pool for your cells. And that's going to be the signaling agents that tell your cells to grow baby, grow in the wrong ways or, you know, grow baby grow in the right ways so growing the right kind of muscle mass to store new healthier mitochondria or relinquish those unhealthy cells that were trying to grow tumors right this is the beauty and the elegance of a metabolic approach which i also feel for me intuitively is just more hopeful 
then this yeah. genetic Russian roulette of you're screwed. Quality of life is also so much better. You know, this constant decline after a cancer diagnosis, yeah. it's just it's just very sad to see. Again, and I, I'm very happy to say that many, if not mo well, most of my patients actually, after a well, the I we start well, we call them thrivers, mm -hmm. not survivors. A, Love that. Thank you. They're thrivers, and they literally do better. Mm -hmm. It's like, congratulations, man! High five! You got prostate cancer. Yeah. Now you get to live your best life moving forward. I don't know if you don't need some conventional treatment. At, depending on the scenario, oh, I love act, I love Gleason Six Prostate Cancer because <laughs> you're like a oh, teeter totter of like oh that's the best. We can totally do this on our own. <laughs> you're not gonna die from prostate cancer, but you got diagnosed. Right. These guys are ready, right. right? And they don't need treatment, right? These are these are these are. But even guys with Gleason Nines, and even when they're on angiogram deprivation therapy, for these guys are so committed and they live such an amazing life as you were saying that their intake of not only food but media changes their 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 tolerance to for bs in the world or relationship everything they just reevaluate their lives it's just beautiful to see men living their best life after a, a diagnosis of prostate cancer I really it. and and know all the things you're doing especially for those patients of yours that might be coming into you on androgen deprivation therapy i mean talk about I mean, talk about the emotional hit and the physical hit that that does. You know, it's like, here's the therapy you're trying to take to theoretically save your life, right? Yet it completely emasculates you at the same time. So a lot of these little hacks that we're talking about today put that empowerment and put the power back into the patient that they can actually support that wave so much more elegantly and not lose themselves in the process. And in fact, as you noted, come back even better than before yeah and and even guys on adt who you know we they, they can still feel like you said masculine right oh. i just tell them look you you do this you're gonna still feel masculine the the ability to perform sexually it's tough because you know your beautiful girlfriend or spouse she's she looks like a piece of art like a beautiful piece of art that looks interesting <laughs> not something that you want to be in intimate well, yeah exactly it, but be careful with those sad movies. You you will ball. You'll you'll be balling in tears, uh, like uh, unlike any other time in your life. So that that will happen. Uh, you know, beautiful moments with your kid and your grandkids or what have you. You will tear more than usual. But that's okay. That that's also masculine. Yeah. Mm. So, what are your terrain biomarkers? Yeah, great. So I look at basic things. I want to understand epigenetics. We talked about SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, yep. help guide me to understand. Like, for instance, the TMPRSS2, for instance, that's a higher mm -hmm. proclivity towards prostate cancer. Yep. And, you know, that's just one example that I can kind of tell. And there's certain markers. Like, if it's going to be an aggressive prostate cancer, sometimes I see things like MLH1, MSH2, these sort of familial, aggressive, oncogene triggering SNPs can show up there that were just kind of your... You know that so if I get people before they have cancer, then we can like look at that and start to shore them up. But if I get people with cancer, we can say, well, this is why this probably explains some of the the patterns and helps you also know how to arm yourself to deal to deal with this differently. So we look at the epigenetics. It also helps me really hone in on what diet's going to be the best fit, when, what duration, what combination. Um, you know, so for instance, like my I, I use my husband as a lot of examples here, but he also he's got the ACSL one SNP, so he's the guy. When he eats too much meat, his insulin levels go crazy high. 
ah. Mr. Gluconeus. So he really does need to stay. He'd love to be a carnivore. He would love it. But he really, like for him, the carb lifestyle was so bad. It Like everyone in his family has died of diabetes. He had di was diagnosed with diabetes in his 30s. So we know carbs are a problem, but also too much protein in his mm. is a problem. And what's that SNP or genetic? Acetylcholine, acetylcholine, the SNP, it's a, it's big and how they process some saturated fats in animal meat and animal fat and animal and animal meat, you know, the, the proteins of it. And so yeah. between that and a few others, he has these SNPs that it's like, okay, you really do have to stick closer to a, a moderate to lower protein amount to keep your insulin levels at bay to keep your to keep that down uh, but he also can't go crazy on the carbs so he's got to just really he does work very well with a high low carb diet like really is mm. magic right um, but other people would have different scenarios different stories so we, if, it, if it wasn't that you met him such a long time ago i would say that was a prerequisite for him to for you to marry him i would say but i know that you met way before uh, you even knew any of this information <laughs> you were being before and the crazy thing is he's a mad scientist biochemist who's also an epigenetics bureau so we've been learning these things together and it's been teaching us both like our own inner workings and our own like what makes us tick as as relation and partnership you know in marriage partnership in business but also like in our just our health evolution because we both have had a lot of extreme health challenges and have been able to come over them because we've learned things about our data that helps drive our what we do differently and so we apply that methodology to the patient so yeah, but genetics give me a lot of information so does that metabolic health like that's a key in fact 90 percent of all cancers are very glycolytic in nature prostate as well but it also likes some other factors so we definitely look at insulin insulin growth factors c-peptide hemoglobin a1c glucose triglycerides i think i've covered the basis there be we look at the body fat index not the bmi but we look at the body fat we you know really check to make sure they don't have the dunlap you know and things like that to look at those things is there any home device that you like on uh, the body fat i've been looking at those i and, and again i'm not looking for so much accuracy just progress exactly but I, I need something i can't it can't be 10 points 10 point difference you know a lot there are a lot of great scales out there now but you just have to make sure the patients are well hydrated because it will also take that into account. So if I educate a patient of like, you really need to keep your hydration at this level to be able to get a more consistent read, like you said, it doesn't have to be accurate or specific, but it's consistent and shows us progress or setbacks. So that's mm -hmm. really key there. I think there's some cool technologies that are coming out this in the next couple of years that can make these good. Cover. I know, I get excited about that. Yeah, because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of patients. So I, I have them yeah. buy several things, right? A tape measure to Four measure them. their waist to hip ratio, you know, you know, scales yeah. um, and things. And I, and I want to recommend a really good scale that, rec you know, I think that they need to, so the ones that you stand on only sort of measures from the waist down right. and then the ones that you hold in your with, in a grip yeah. in your hands measures from the arms to the weight in the combo and looking at yeah. the combo yeah. yeah so i'm looking at what's best yeah. you know without spending thousands of dollars for equipment um, that i have in my clinic there is one i like it's around 100 bucks i think on amazon that's the handheld stand-on and it gets a yeah omron has one oh, that's is, right yeah yeah I think yeah. that fits in. Yeah. And so that metabolic, that's one of the drops in the in the mitochondrial bucket is actually, what are you fueling yourself with? So we also take a look at their diet diary, their lifestyle. Like, how do you eat? Do you eat before? Do you eat late at night? Do you eat early in the morning? Like, are you eating within sunlight hours? Like, what's do you eat driving down the road? You know, do you go through the drive-through? Like, we just want to get a sense of even their patterns of it. Are they eating alone? Are they eating with somebody? Are they multitasking while they're eating? Those things make a difference. Okay. And then are they able to fast? Are they uncomfortable if they go more than four hours without food? Are 
Are they needing a snack before they go to bed? Do they wake up in the middle of the night hungry? Do they have to put something in their mouth the second they get up? Those are all signs of metabolic inflexibility. So we want to really address that. The, the next one is toxicants. I mean, my gosh, we are living on the planet today. It's no doubt that we all have toxicity, how bad is it, and how does it interact with the rest of our terrain, right? And then so mm-hmm. um, like my husband loves the smell of diesel. I get a massive headache and super nauseous because I'm missing some glutathione snips. They're completely don't exist for me. So I have to take the garbage out myself with my body. I have to sauna. I have to take binders. I got to keep everything moving. I got to make sure bowels, breaths, skin, like all that stuff is flowing because my body will store the toxins where other people can deal with it better you know, than somebody else. So learn about that about yourself. And you can get curious. And How do you test for that? Well, there's some really cool ones now. I mean, we used to be able to use Great Plains Labs, so they've changed up a little bit. So we've been using, is it Vibrant is one we've been using. in the- Vibrant Labs? Yep. And there's a company out of France that is called Kudzu, like the plant, Kudzu Science, that does things like you can even get a silicon wristband that you t- get home, you wear it for a week. So you can even look at the acute exposures in your home. Mm-hmm. They'll measure that. They will also look at skin, or excuse me, hair, urine, and blood, and really look at all the things. And they're a pretty good price point, way cheaper, and they'll ship their kits globally. Um, so you can really assess what's going on with someone's toxic exposures. Um, you can also just have people like look, go through their zip code, ewg.org, right? Look at the zip code of what they're drinking in their water. You can also, there's a couple air pollution sites that you could put in. You can also go to the environmental, you know, the EPA website and type in for super fun sites, your zip code, and just know what industries you're being exposed to. So people can start to get a good sense. In our intake, we have a huge, this is all kind of learned from Dr. Walter Crinion, one of our teachers in the environmental medicine space that's no longer with us, but he is in many other ways. Then I use a kind of a repurposed uh, environmental intake from him. So I do ask people like, do you have a water filter? Um, do you you know, use dry cleaning? What are your body care products? I mean, do you use plastics? Do you handle plastics on a regular basis, like receipts and whatnot? So those are the things that you start to do an inventory, an audit, right? So I tell people, if you ever have me over for dinner, I'm going to look in your medicine cabinet. I'm going to look under your kitchen sink. I'm going to look in your pantry. I'm going to look in your garage. That's what I do. I start throwing things out, right? 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 Like, <laughs> I can walk into somebody's home right away and know if it's toxic. I mean, especially like fragrances. Yeah. yeah. It's the new carcinogen. It's the new cigarette smoke. And yeah, you know, that's a tough one. Cult, this cultural cultural scenarios involved. And, and, and for, for us, it's like, that's a, that's one that, you know, it's hard to break. Exactly. Uh, and then I test yeah. to see how much of that is in my body. Um, or, you know, I, I think testing, because what happens is, so I, the method and, and my methodology is always changing yeah. and I'm always upgrading it. Right. Yeah. But I'm one of the thing, main things I focus on is, all right, how do we be, how can we be holistic, but realistic? Where do we start? Right. Because I, I will not be going to their homes anymore. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah. So where do we start? Sure. I mean, some guy, some guys are coming at zero. Yeah. You know, yep. they're, they're coming at zero. So if I tell them 10 things, they're not going to do anything. And I want to set them up for success. Well, one so. of the things I, you know, in my book itself, I have in the very beginning is a terrain 10 questionnaire. And it's very low hanging fruit, very simple. We've actually expanded on it. It's like much more deep that goes into our data platform as well. I can help you get that for the show notes that people can do kind of a self audit there. So out of those 10 drops in the bucket, so epigenetics, me- metabol- you know, metabolism, toxicant, microbiome, immune system, inflammation, 
circadian like oxygenation and angiogenesis, so circulation, hormone balance, stress and circadian rhythm, and mental emotional. Those are the 10 drops that are part of the questionnaire. And you can then do that questionnaire and understand what your priorities are. So it might say, wow, you know, really I scored highest in environmental toxins, stress, and maybe I'm a sugarholic. So those three places, that's where we then can hone in and say, well, let's see if that sugar really is a problem for you. Let's take a look at your insulin. Let's take a look at your A1C. Let's take a look at your insulin growth factor. If there are any cancering, I'm going to look at an IGF-1 in every patient. Then the same thing with toxicants. Like, well, can you kind of do a quick audit around your house? Here's a guide of what that looks like. Can you get a sense of maybe it's time to get rid of the Teflon? Maybe it's time to, you know, switch out to glassware. Maybe it's time to stop using that particular body shampoo or whatever to make those steps happen. And then if we don't see some significant changes, because many of those are very big endocrine disruptors, which we're in yeah. your community as well as mommy. Absolutely. And so that's one. And then like even down to the stressors, like, okay, well, if you've got some extra cash, let's look at maybe HRV technologies for you. Because a lot of guys are like their gadgets, right? They like their data, their- Wearables, yeah. Yeah, the biofeedback of that's really yeah, helpful. I, 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 I'm all, I I'm love all it. covered. Well, I'm all covered. Men are drawn to that more than women. And I'm not yeah. trying to- but I think it's helpful because it, it's true. It's real time data, and it's like it's not working for me. Or yep, that is working for me. And so, but that's good. But you can also still like there's a lot of great like stress index, you know, freebie questionnaires and things out there to get a sense of that. Pretty and, accurate. Yeah, and then like in that stress zone, it's like even getting down to like sleep hygiene that you alluded to you know, nature time, circadian rhythm support. So that's where we start is helping people look at maybe their top two or three priorities and then hone in there. That's a, the simplest place to start. But when someone already has maybe read my book, taken a thing and say, I'm ready to jump in, we do have a series of onboarding labs. And they're looking at things like your your metabolic health. They're looking at things like inflammation, angiogenesis, hormone, you know, the hormones, not just of like sex hormones, but how the thyroid's interacting, how the adrenals are interacting. Um, you know, we take a look at deep dive at all of that. So we have this tapestry of who you are. It reveals to us what your patterns are and therefore what your priorities are for the treatment. So that's why I say we're not protocol driven because you're, uh, we took 10 of your patients with, you know, metastatic prostate cancer. All of them got there for a different, in a different way. And all different reasons and all different needs to even take them back to balance. There might be some right. fundamental commonalities, right, across the board, but still the nuances, the individuality is what makes this approach shine because the patient I love it. is at the center of the equation. So you're going to send me the, the terrain, terrain 10? Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll load that up That'd as well. Awesome. I'd love it because I want people to get curious. What's that? I want people to get curious about. Yeah. Why? Right. Yeah. You know the why it is 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 it's actually very interesting. You know when you do like a personality type or something, and it's like, oh, please, I don't like myself. It's like I wonder if some of that. Oh my God, I'm a mess. <laughs> it's like, oh God, it's like I'm a. Where do I start? But it's important to know. It, it is very important. Part of the what we do in our practice is you know have the patients get to know themselves yes. let me help you let me learn about you and how your body and how you work and function biochemically and let me teach you how your body works biochemically and how we can make the, the adjustments to to really for for prostate cancer to be an opportunity yes for you and not a a, a death sentence love that yeah this is why we this is why we vibe 
That's why we buy. Aisha, final words. Thank you so much for being on. By the way, this has been awesome. You know, I've had a few. And for a while, I had a lot of MDs on my podcast. And it's great because these are like leaders in oh, yeah. their space. And every now and then, I didn't have too many MDs. I had Paul Anderson, Dr. Paul Anderson, uh, a, a few others. And so you're, 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 you know, you're, you're one of our, one of our own here talking, uh, you know, integrative approaches. So I thank you so much for being on. Final words from you. Wow. I mean, first of all, one thing I think is so powerful, what you do, what I get to do is we get to help people understand they're far more powerful than they're led to believe mm -hmm. and that they have far more like you, you spoke about this a few times during our talk today. And I just want to really punctuate this, which is cancer is an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity. And so it's like you can you can meet it head on and it can change your life for the better, I promise. And so it's an honor to be here with you, with your tribe. I look forward to hearing what people find when they play with their Terrain 10 questionnaire. Um, I look forward to seeing you continue to make a ripple of positive effect in men's lives um, on this planet because there's not many people doing that. And I'm really grateful to have colleagues like yourself who are out there supporting the divine masculine. So thank you. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for saying that. Nisha, thank you so much. I really hope to see you in person soon. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at conferences that you're going at and even just be with you and spend some time with you. I'm going to probably attend. Thank it. you so much, honey. <laughs> Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. <laughs> it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. 
If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.